from Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, hey, out there in a winter wonderland, this is the best political podcast you've never downloaded. It is Backroom Politics, live from Studio A in Podcast Village. Uh, kind of lonely here for right now. I'm sure Dan Littner will do his usual Kramer-esque entrance. But until then, uh, it is myself here in Studio A uh, on the line from an undisclosed location in the Bay State of Massachusetts. He is the author of such great books as uh, P- American Politics on the Rocks. He's the one we know as Rich Rubino. Hello, Richard. Hi, Justin. And, uh, of course, behind the glass and the boards is uh, the proprietor of Podcast Village and uh, our our engineer today. He is Charlie Burney, and helping him out is Maddie the engineer. Or Maddie left. Maddie will be back. Maddie we, will be back. She's too important to she, sit here the whole I, time. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, and I'm any, just a stand-in for Rob Ford, so yeah, I'll do ex- my best. Exactly. And and then, of course, uh, Eric Thomas, Eric the, uh, the producer, is out doing Eric the producer type stuff. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about, and there's been a lot of developments going on, and they're constantly changing, even as we go to recording. For those who listen to us on a regular basis, you know that we record these podcasts on a Tuesday afternoon in Georgetown. Uh, and as we are talking, the House Rules Committee, I believe, is still in session debating on the uh, the parameters or what they're going to call balls and strikes on in the rules for the impeachment coming up. Uh, it has been a contentious couple of weeks, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of uh, drama, political drama going on. It is, it's an, it's an interesting and difficult time to be here in your nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, Rich Rubino, you know, the thing about it is I, I've been, I've been watching the hearings uh from Capitol Hill, and it, it it struck me, as it struck many Americans, that we're seeing a lot of the political drama unfolding, but when we look at the poll numbers, we're not seeing a lot of shift into those that believe the president should be impeached and removed and those who believe he should not be impeached and removed. It is pretty much down party lines. Uh, is there anything possible that we could hear that would make this shift either way? I, I mean, possible, yeah, but it would have to be an absolute cataclysmic event. I mean, I think it just shows how bifurcated the country is ideologically, I don't think that most of that division is necessarily on substance, because if you look at the poll, it's like 4 or 5%, for example, that say he should be impeached and not removed. So I think it's people basically come down to red and blue. It's come down to ideological lines. If you like Trump, you think he's not guilty. If you, if you don't like him, you think he is guilty. And it just comes down to it's just, it's just that simple. It's a matter of whether you like him or not or you don't like him. You know, The question was asked about whether Adam Schiff, if Barack Obama had done the same it was charged with the same with the same crimes that Donald Trump is charged with. Adam Schiff said he hopes to God that he would support um, that he would have voted for an impeachment of Obama as well. My guess is it would have been the exact opposite. It would have been almost every Democrat supporting impeachment, and I mean opposing impeachment, almost every Republican supporting it. It, it, it struck me, and I think we talked about it last week. But even as we went further into uh, the judiciary hearings, even after. 
Chairman uh, Chairman uh, Nadler from New Jersey, who I'm sorry, New Jersey, New York, New York rather. Uh, Chairman Nadler from New York, who uh, unexpectedly stopped the hearing to let, as he put it, everybody kind of think and dwell on it before they actually yep. did the vote. I, I didn't see that being a problem because it was kind of a lose-lose either way. I mean, if, if Nadler had kept it going and they had voted at 3 o'clock in the morning, the problem would have been that, you know, Chairman Nadler would have been accused of, you know, you know midnight backroom politics, which ironically is the name of our show, these <laughs> midnight backroom pol- political deals that are going. But, it, but when he stopped it, you had everybody on the Republican side basically – Screaming corruption and no due process. It, 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 it turned out to be a lose lose for the Dems. Yeah, you know, well, you know, it's really, you got to pick your battles too, in a sense. I mean, I remember Doug Collins, the, uh, the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee, get up and they're saying, this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable what had happened and started talking essentially after the gavel had banged and started talking to the press about, you know, how awful this was that, um, that he, that he, that Chairman Naylor had closed down the hearings. But then the next day it comes up and, is just as everyone expected. Every single Democrat on the committee supports the impeachment. Every other, every Republican votes against the impeachment. And now it's going to come down to the, it's going to come down to the final vote on impeachment. My guess is every Republican, from you know Fred Upton and Bill Hurd, probably the most moderate Republicans, are going to support are going to vote against the impeachment. And then the Democratic Party, with the possible, with I think the exception of Colin Peterson from Minnesota, who comes from a district that's literally went 31 points for Trump. So. It would be his political death knell if he were to come out for impeachment. And then there's the possibility of Ron Kind from Wisconsin, who comes from a blue, who comes from a red district, somewhat red district, and um, Kendra Horn from Oklahoma. But you, you know, you might see some, you might, you saw some politicians, whether it's something interesting, like Ben McGanna from Utah, because a, a district that Donald Trump won by 30, by 13 points. Joe Cunningham from South, South Carolina. Some of these, some of these members might just be one-term. One-term wonders. A lot of times, they got this. in the in the case of Ben McAdam, for example, he got elected last time simply because the incumbent Mark Stanford lost in a primary, and then he was running against you know somebody who's too conservative for Charleston, South Carolina. But um, you know, I don't see this any. I don't see this as anything other than um, on both sides. Right. Um, you know, do you like Trump or do you don't like Trump? Right. Joining us in studio as he does in his very Kramer-esque entrance. He is the former Dem- or former Joe Biden political operative on his campaign back in the day. He is a longtime Democratic political operative and a bar licensed attorney in the great state of Maryland in the District of Columbia, Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Jim. Uh, we got to turn on Daniel. <laughs> once, once we get once we get Daniel's mic going, we'll 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 have that going. Try it again. Hello, Justin. There, there it is. Go. There we go. Uh Daniel, you, you saw the uh, political drama that un- unleashed last week in the uh, uh, in the Judiciary Committee. Um, I, you know, I, I tweeted out and I took some heat for Can it. Can you believe it? Pulling a left-handed pitcher to go against a right-handed batter? Can you believe I, it? Exactly. Yet the end of the game is that the Republicans still lost. Yeah, well, and that's I, well, the that's only line question. everyone else is seeing. The yeah, rest well, but but here's the thing is, the, the one thing I noticed, and, I, and I've taken a heat for saying this, and I might have said it last week, is that I, I get the impression that Jerry Nadler really didn't have full control of the hearing. As it played out, it, he almost looked like a deer caught in the headlights. Uh, you know, motion. You know, the, the the Republicans would make their motions, and he just kind of seemed 
off kilter or just not truly getting a grasp of the control of the hearing. Was that a bad optic for Democrats? I mean, there's a reason that uh, Adam Schiff was running the, the, the most of this the show, investigation. The, in, the investigation for the Intelligence Committee. Um, that was a, pl- a pretty shrewd move uh, by Speaker Pelosi as far as how uh, the, the whole di- dynamics is going to play out. That said, the Judiciary Committee absolutely had a role to play, and the Nadler could have been the the king of Robert's uh, not Robert's rules of evidence. Uh, what's the um, the uh, Robert's rules of order? That's what I'm thinking. Right. Um, the as as parliamentary far, procedure. Parliamentary procedure. Right. And the Republicans were still going to grandstand on absolutely everything, cry bloody murder, and basically. Regardless of how, how great Nadler could have been, and I'm not saying he was terribly phenomenal, it was still going to look like a mess because that's what it is when you try to muddy the waters with noise. Well, the Republicans were claiming that you know that there was uh, illegalities or, or I don't want to say uh, inappropriate decisions made by the majority on the Judiciary Committee. For example, one of the things that uh, Ranking Member Collins from Georgia came out and said was he had never seen a, a you know a witness not be sworn in who was reading a statement then turn around and start asking questions of witnesses. Was is there a there there on that, or is he just trying to muddy the waters? There is no there there. And which witness are you talking about? Are you talking about the lawyers testifying? Yes. Well, the lawyers testifying are also members of the bar and considering their statements have to have some legal legal basis there is some legal ethics involved with with them as well so but you, don't, you don't think it it's was nonsense but you don't think it was inappropriate the fact that you you know you had in one instance him giving testimony to the hearing uh, or to the committee and then literally in like a five minute break walking around the back of the hearing room and then start interrogating witnesses. That wasn't unusual for you? As as I believe several Republicans in the Senate have already pointed out, this is not a judicial procedure or judicial uh, action going on. It's a congressional hearing. So there are different rules. And though Louis Gohmert was hemming and high in his Louis Gohmert sort of way. Uh, and, and don't forget Jim Sensenbrenner. He was up there, too. Yeah, but but Louis is a personal favorite. Um, uh, he he must not have had his broccoli for breakfast. I think um, Spencer won the lottery twice. He did. believe it or not. <laughs> we'll talk about that. again. That, that's good information. But hold hold on, Richard. So the uh, the the nonsense of having it both ways. And again, senators have pointed out recently. Um, I that this is not a this is not a court of law. This is Congress. So there are different rules, and while the Constitution does lay out some things, not very much, the rules are dictated by the chambers themselves. Did it surprise you the way the vote turned out? I'm sure it didn't, but I'm going to ask the question anyway, straight along party lines. Did you expect a Republican to vote in favor? The only thing that really disappointed me is I'm actually one of the folks that was in favor of forcing votes on every nitpicking little issue. Did the president do this, yay or nay, and thus that was an article of impeachment, as opposed to these omnibus uh, 
two items of impeachment, which kind of encompass everything else. I would have preferred every Republican on the record saying, no, we don't believe he did this. No, we don't believe he did this. No, we don't believe he did this. I would have preferred every last one of those items broken out individually. Should there have been more than two articles? I mean, it's a political judgment there. I think there should have been, and I think uh, Democrats should have forced the issue. Um, The profiles and courage moments that are occurring right now, as far as all the Democrats um, that are, uh, as I cast this vote, looking into their open graves, uh, potentially, um, yeah, these are actually profiles and courage moments that saying, and most that have said this have said explicitly, there is something bigger than reelection. I wish there were a handful of Republicans other than Justin Amash that, that were even in that realm. Well, you have uh, Rich Rubino. You have like uh, Congresswoman Slotkin out of Michigan, who uh, pretty much ran into a half and half room at a uh, local town hall that she did in her district. Uh, that is a purple-ish, almost slightly red district that she won. Uh, she may have a problem, but she's come out and said that this is bigger than me. Whereas on the flip side of that, you look at Jeff Van Dorn in New Jersey. Who, had, who was elected as a Democrat in a vacant seat, uh, largely in a very, very blue state like New Jersey, has pretty much done everything except sign the paperwork on flipping from Democrat to Republican. He's a moron. But because, uh, because of the impeachment vote. He's been one of the Democrats that has been staunchly opposed to this. Are, are we going to see other... Democrats kind of circling that ring of do I want to keep my job or do I do what in my mind is the right thing? I think we've pretty much seen just about every Democrat. I'll say one thing about Van Drew, though. What's fascinating is he actually comes from a district that's slightly red in New Jersey. It's, you know, it's not Trenton. It's actually somewhat rural. So, but, he, but it's not, you know, it's not Colin Peterson's district that's 31 points for Trump. It's like a 10-point district. It's like a five-point district. Right. So it's no different than, you know, um, it's no different than a lot of these other folks that have come out the, that have come out the other side. And they're, they're folks like Ben McAdam from Utah who come from um, a lot more conservative districts than he came from. You know, it's fascinating. I've, I've, I can only think of one example where somebody's actually gone from the – there's a lot of been party switches in history, and usually the party switches are from the minority to the majority party. You know, after, the day after um, 1994, the, the, Democrat, the Democrats lost both the House and the Senate. The day after that, with Bill Clinton as president, Richard Shelby from Alabama says, I'm going to become a Republican. That makes sense. He was a conservative Democrat. He usually voted with Republicans. And he was going to become Republican because of the majority party. Well, you get a lot more influence when you're in the majority. When you're going to the, from the majority party to the minority party, you're running for election. It's very hard to talk to those kind of persuadable voters and say, well, I basically, I basically lost some influence I had in the majority party to go to the minority party. And his voting record is not that conservative. His voting record is pretty much a standard issue center-left Democrat. Um, it's nowhere near yeah, what some and, of the other blue-dog Democrats not going to get the, are. Which, and he's not going to get the Republican nomination along the way. He's what yeah. he, he's a political moron. Um, at, at, and this to your point that yeah, it's he's he's voted as a, as a as a center-left Democrat. Um, he's stuck his finger in the air for his own political. Uh, political opportunism and said, oh, yeah, I'm with the president now all of a sudden. 
and everyone hates him. He's got no friends in New Jersey. Right, right. You know, there's one example I can think of. Remember Michael Forbes? There right. was a congressman from New York, and he came, He was um, actually in 1994. He was supported by Newt Gingrich. He became a, he, became, he ran for the Republican Party, part of the Republican Revolution. He gradually moved further to the left, but he did vote for all four articles of impeachment with Bill Clinton. In 1999, for some reason, he decides he's going to become a Democrat. He's going from majority party to the minority party. Bill Clinton loves this. Bill Clinton and Dick Gephardt have a big press conference announcing he's coming up, announcing he's going to become a Democrat. One year later, he loses his own primary and he's out of politics. So, I mean, it's very, you know, it's very hard to make the case why you should go from being well, to your constituents, why you're going, why you're becoming less influential in Congress. It's not like you can say, you know, if you're getting, if you're going from one side to the other, it's not like you can say, you know, oh, I got a chairmanship, I got a subcommittee chairmanship, I can do more for you. He's basically assuming I can saying I can do less for you, and I'm still just a Republican Democrat. I mean, to be Republican and the, he's still just a, a, um, a freshman Republican. It makes no, it's nonsensical. Uh, let's move forward a little bit, uh, because as we know, the, the articles were passed. The, the Judiciary Committee sent forward two articles, one for obstruction of just or one for obstruction of Congress, the other for abuse of power. Um, and now we've got the Rules Committee uh, discussing the parameters of the hearing. But let, let's look at the White House response to this. There's been a lot of I don't know whether Dan, I would call it either just bad information management, bad strategy, or just miscalculating, you know, the, the winds of the popular view. Uh, you have a president that tweeted during the Marathon Judiciary Committee hearing over 100 times during the hearing. Uh, you've, got, uh, you've got the minority out there giving pressers after this screaming inappropriate this is strictly political it's a bad use of the articles of impeachment they're trying to nullify the vote of 63 american people uh where is where is the right answer in the republicans trying to move this forward and trying to come up with a defense well they're trying to defend the indefensible because i'll be i mean the lindsey graham Items. Uh, admittedly, this is the Senate, not the House. But when Republicans were speaking before there was any hard evidence out there, at least from the the, the committee's investigations, um, many Republicans basically said, well, you know, if there were actual evidence of a quid pro quo, if there were actually were these trade-offs, if there was anyone who actually did this, and lo and behold, you have this real evidence. So they've had to retrench and retrench and retrench again. So the, the the arguments that they keep making are just political nonsense. Unfortunately, that political nonsense is working within the Republican Party, which, again, with the glaring exception of Justin Amash, um, it, it, it's unclear to me where the where the principle lies. Uh, the saying that people do this. Uh, all the time, which is what uh, Alan Moore uh, uh, would say. Yes, there are quid pro quos that occur, um, which is a political spin argument, which probably should have been stuck with. Uh, However, once you add in the personal nature and Rudy Giuliani in the mix, it suddenly becomes indefensible again. So the only thing you can do is attack the process. And once it becomes a Senate trial, that's a different beast entirely because you're going to have a national focus explicitly on these items. 
So I don't know where the right answer is for Republicans on what is essentially indefensible. But let's go back to their argument, though. I mean, if you go and you listen to the argument brought forth by the Republicans in the hearing, they said that both the president and President Zelensky of of Ukraine, both, according to them, say that there was no pressure, no quid pro quo. The... Uh, the you mean they ask the hostages that have a gun to their head whether or not they feel endangered? What? That's what I'm going with is, you know, you've got you've got a Ukrainian president, a newly installed Ukrainian president that's saying, eh, I didn't feel any pressure. Uh, what happens if he says he did? But th- that's the question. I mean, they got their funding. I mean, if you listen After to it was made public. But but again, you is is you know is I didn't there actually any... rob the bank. I saw the cop right there. That is the Republican. Does that argument hold water? And who does it have to hold water with? Well, I mean, that's the poll numbers that came out today uh, on a couple different fronts and the Fox News numbers from yesterday. Um, while the partisan splits are partisan splits, the independent voters are the real key and the independent voters seem to think that yeah trump did it and it was wrong uh and that's one of those things that's a bit more interesting when you talk about both the the macro politics for the president and the micro politics for republicans that got to get reelected some of which still need independent voters right. while you've gerrymandered the hell out of a bunch of districts Independents are still growing. People are leaving the parties and people are leaving the Republican Party far faster. And, and Rich Rubino, this without going down the 1994 historical rabbit hole, just touching on Dan's point, though, is are we finding that independent voters are going to be the key for whether or not an actual <laughs> impeachment is successful or... Are, are they literally doing this, preparing for 2020, seeing that the independent voters may not be enough to get them impeached and removed, but if we can sell independent voters, we can unelect him in November? I think, it, yeah, I do think it's all a play for 2020, because I don't think anybody realistically thinks that Donald Trump is going to be impeached and convicted, um, barring some cataclysm, some smoking gun, but which we're not going to see in the next couple of weeks, certainly. No, it is about 2020, but the persuadable voters are getting less and less. And I think Donald Trump thinks that and Donald Trump is going to try to do what George W. Bush did in 2004. He's going to try to win this election by a, almost a base-only strategy, as opposed to trying to get those few persuadable voters. You've got to remember, of those, persu- of those independents, a lot of those independents are either functionally Democrat or functionally Republican. So you're really only getting to about 10 or 20 percent that are actually true independents that can actually go either way. And since Donald Trump is such a divisive figure, there are very few of those who look at, who look at the political scene and say, well, you know, I sort of like Trump, and then, but I also sort of like the Democratic nominee. Trump's such a divisive figure. Either you'd like him or you don't like him. And I, so I don't think that there are that many persuadable voters that are going to decide the election. A lot of it's just going to be how much we can, can we get our, can we get our base out how many people can we get out in our base? And that's pretty much what the election is going to be decided on, I believe. Well, and that's part of the mystery, since each time Trump has hit the ground places, he's got a lot of marquee losses going on uh, in multiple places, not the least of which was Louisiana. Well, you bring up uh, Louisiana, you bring you bring up uh, Kentucky, the governor's race in Kentucky. Yeah. 
I mean, he, he may have lost the governor's mansion, but Republicans still had a strong showing in the rest of the statewide races. Right, yeah, and, but these um, are red states. Oh, no, go ahead, Rich. Rich, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say though, there is. I think that I think it was it was not a smart move for Donald Trump to spend his time. First of all, he went to Louisiana, where he had an incumbent governor with a 64 percent job approval rating. He goes to Kentucky. Yes, it's a state where where the Republicans won by 20 points last time, but. Also, but the, but you had a, you had a governor you had Governor Bevin who was relatively unpopular who had made some mistakes going after teachers teachers that type of thing and also just the fact that Demo- that governors races are so much different than Senate races in Senate races you make the case that blah 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 is is a puppet of Chuck Schumer a puppet of Nancy Pelosi you can't and they're going to vote for that person in leadership you can't make that case in the governor's race I think actually in a state like Kentucky it's better to be a Democrat running for governor than it is to be a Republican because all you have to say is I'm going to be a check on the other on the on the fact I'm going to be a check on the legislature which is overwhelmingly controlled by the other party and as long as you don't say if you don't come on as a radical they all, you know, as long as you come out as somewhat of a moderate, you're at an advantage. That's why the three most popular governors in the country right now are Phil Scott from Vermont, Charlie, Charlie, Charlie Baker from Massachusetts, and Larry Hogan from Maryland. They're all Republican governors in predominantly Democratic states dealing with Democratic legislatures. Right. It, let's, I want to move on a little bit because uh, I do want to touch on the idea that you brought up, Dan, regarding the issue of there's as you say there's no chance in hell that they're going to impeach or remove donald trump with he the current makeup absolutely going to be impeached removed I mean, well, impeach, I mean convicted and removed let me let me rephrase that there's no chance he's going to be convicted in the senate and removed is that accurate i mean the old adage that you know being caught with a a a dead woman or a live boy is the worst thing. Donald Trump oh, easy could, on that. Easy on that. We're Donald Edward, Edward. Edward. Do- yeah, no kidding. Donald Trump could be found with both, and the base would say, "Well, you know, that woman obviously killed herself, and it was a sign of love for uh, Donald Trump." Easy, easy, easy on no, that. No, I mean this. Uh, some of the stuff is just such nonsense, and it's it's painful to but, sit there but, and watch. But I'm, let me I'm ask looking you, for folks with integrity. Let me ask you this question. And I think there could be some Republicans but, that bolt. I'm looking hard at Mitt you, Romney. <laughs> but no, no. But let me ask you this question though: If in fact the current state of the Senate, the current political makeup of the Senate, which gives them a solid majority, it, this is not a fifty-one forty-nine. This is a solid majority in the Senate. A fifty-three forty-seven. <clears throat> it's better. It's better than fifty-one forty-nine. That yeah, but it's. I mean, it's not a huge majority. It's not. A, it's not an overwhelming, but it's still. It's still enough to keep. It's not the super the majority. It, it's entirely possible the president could get a majority of the U.S. Senate saying he should be removed and not be removed. And that not, is entirely possible. All right. So, but the, then the question goes back to. Is the argument that President Trump and the Republicans making that this is a political witch hunt, knowing that there was no way they could get this through a Republican-led Senate with 53 Republicans in seat, does this in fact become a political kabuki dance that impugns the articles of impeachment? No. So No, no. So... Everything about American politics, and and this goes, and I'm going to do, do a rich here and go back all the way to the 2000 election. All of this is designed to go back to the voters, and the only way it can truly go back to the voters are not the nonsense you 
you tweet or floor speeches, but how you actually cast your votes. So each member of the House that says he did nothing wrong or each member of the Senate that says he should or should not be removed from office, that is something that the voters in each of those those members of Congress or members of the Senate, their constituencies get to decide whether or not that was right, right or but wrong. Hold on, hold on. It you all the... belongs back to okay, the voters. But hold so, on. so this, no, no. Let me finish this point because I, I am actually, and I appreciate you saying, and I know you're playing devil's advocate here, but it's exhausting when people say that this is just for, for song and dance, just for show. You're damn right, it's for show. It's for show for the for the voters, so they can actually decide on their own whether or not their representatives have, have faithfully executed. This their jobs, and those are forcing their representatives to be on the record matters, and that's where voters should be making their decisions. Okay, okay, let me ask you this question. Could the Democrats, going off of your theory that this is just a political kabuki dance, I'm not for, saying just a political kabuki dance. I'm well, saying that, I'm say, it, it's for the voters. You cast a vote right, so, so the voters can decide. Could, could, uh, could, dismissing the voters is, 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 is troubling in and of itself. Could Nancy Pelosi... And the Democrats done the same show for voters with articles of censure. In theory. Then why not do that knowing that you're feeding into with impeachment? Well, well, principally, it doesn't. Articles of censure don't require the Senate to move. It's a punitive action, though. It does not require the Senate to move. So then why? But again, would have. And, and Rich, I'm going to come to you with the same question. Stand by. And the Constitution, the Constitution Do, requires it, a simple majority for impeachment from the House. Okay. So saying the, that but one chamber that you, says we believe there is enough here for a trial. So the, the basically you're indicted. You have not been convicted of a crime, but we think you, there, this, there's enough here to go to trial. And that trial in the Senate and Mitch McConnell's little saying, "We're uh, there's nothing here and I'm going to make this go as quickly as possible. By the way, Mitch McConnell's underwater in Kentucky, so mm-hmm. there's a game there as well for him to play. And since, you know, it's possible that the American voters could be very well more principled than the people in office. And sometimes the, we are actually surprised there. Rich Rubino, same question to you. I mean, was... Was did the Democrats overplay the impeachment hand when they could have gotten the same effect without putting it in the hands of the Republicans in the Senate by doing a, a punitive action like a censure of the president for abusing his office and possible obstruction? Would that have been a smarter play? Yeah, I think that would have been more politically sagacious to do just because that's why what a lot of the moderate members, those 31 members from Trump's Trump, Trump, Trump supported districts, wanted there to be a censor so they could say, you know, we did vote for, so we said that what the president did was wrong, it was unethical, but we didn't want to go, we didn't want the country to have to go through the whole process of going through an impeachment. You know, I mean, this whole process, it's fascinating because so much of this is more about history than it is about, um, than it is about actually, actually anything changing. And this is what I would argue if I was a Republican, I would say, it's the same argument, by the way, that the, Democrat, that the Democrats made during um, the Clinton impeachment. They're saying, why aren't we dealing with prescription drugs? Why aren't we dealing with, with health care? Why aren't we dealing with other, with other things? Um, I even saw Matt Gates of all people, t- saying that from Florida, a very conservative member from the Panhandle, saying that we should be dealing with, we should be talking about climate change of all things instead of dealing with this impeachment. <laughs> but um, he really said that. He said that during the Judiciary Committee meeting. I said, "Wow." He I said, said a lot of things um, during the Judiciary Committee yeah, that was not smart. Yeah, and the climate we'll change was the, it, 
we, we should we should be advancing climate change even faster. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I know that's what he would be. He would be sponsoring legislation. I know if this wasn't going on, he would have very, very, the first thing he would be doing would have all sorts of. The, legislation the, there are portions of Australia to- that aren't on fire yet. We want one hundred percent of Australia on fire. <laughs> I do want to. I do want to make one comment though. I, I I do want to call out uh, Congressman Gates for that ranting he did not once but twice on the cocaine found in the rental car in California bit that he ran, again, not once, but twice brought it out. Uh, Congressman Jones from uh, Georgia made the comment of, hey, that's pot calling the kettle black, considering that Congressman Gates himself has been arrested for DUI and the... the, the circumstances around how that never went to court are very, very questionable. Number two, Congressman Gates uh, has something like 115 uh, moving traffic violations, which makes him, under Florida law, a possible threat behind the wheel, and yet still has a driver's license. He lost his driver's license because he refused to blow a breathalyzer. I find that highly inappropriate that a member of Congress would say that as part of a committee hearing on impeachment. And number two, the fact that he would call it out not once but twice after being told, hey, that's kind of that that's kind of outside the parameters and not really cool when it comes to we're above that basically is what he was told. And he didn't find it he didn't find it relevant. Uh I mean Louis Gomer went after uh, one of the FBI agents way, way back when and said, it must be chilling to look into your wife's eyes. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. Or well, much. yeah. I mean, come on. At least the Stone's I mean, problem, yeah. I mean, the, the, the lack of decency being portrayed out there is just horrendous. It is. It is. Uh, Rich Rubino, let, let's, let's move on to some of, the, uh, some of the aftermath of the judiciary hearing. For example... I uh, want to talk about uh, the the situation where Senate Leader Mitch McConnell, who received a re- a request or a letter from uh, Chuck Schumer, the Majority Leader, Minority Leader. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, Minority Leader, the, minor, the Minority Leader in the U.S. Senate, uh, asking to call and subpoena new witnesses in the Senate trial of President Trump. Mitch McConnell called it a strange request at this juncture, and Mitch McConnell also said that uh, Schumer was dead wrong and suggested that the House's case against Trump is deficient. Is is, is that a sign? Now, this is also coming around the time when uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said publicly that he is, in fact, coordinating with the Office of White House Counsel on the trial. At the same time, you have Lindsey Graham saying, I'm not going to listen to anything. This is a witch hunt. I've already made up my mind. Is there, I mean, is there an issue for those senators that are coming out with that mantra that, A, they could be slightly violating the oath of office and the oath that they take prior to? The impeachment hearing, or is this expected? It would be very cool to see Justice Roberts uh, well, hold rule on, on that. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We'll get to that, too. But, Rich Rubino, your thoughts. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. They, Lindsey Graham has basically said that he's not going to be an impartial juror. You know, the, the, the official line should be, when you're asked about this, essentially saying something to the effect of, you know, I'm not going to comment on this right now because my job is to be a juror, even though everybody knows how everyone's essentially going to vote. I mean, that's what you're supposed to say to be politically correct. I mean, Lindsey Graham is basically saying, no, I just want to get this over with, and this is a person who's chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Um, you know, it's fascinating. He was in the in, back in 1999 during the Clinton impeachment. He was one of he, a young South Carolina congressman. He was one of the the managers who actually went to the Senate, and he was you know trying to make the case why Bill Clinton should be impeached. Um, so now it's fascinating. So he was trying to make the case to those jurors. Now he's going to be a juror, and now essentially he says this is how I'm going. This is how I'm going to vote. And it's interesting. His own political. I mean, he's there as the poll that shows so he's only ahead by about two points in the conservative state of South Carolina. I think that his biggest fear was always that there's going to be a pr- major primary challenge. He's had him in the past. Well, now he's moved to the right. He doesn't have that primary challenge, but now he could have a, now he could actually have a challenge from the left and a Senate seat that should not be um, that should not be up for grabs may absolutely and may abs- may abs- actually be some sort of a bellwether or some sort of a swing a swing state this time around, which means that the Republicans are going to have to pour a lot of money into defending Lindsey Graham when they should be spending that money in more vulnerable Republicans like Susan Collins and Cory Gardner. I will be rewarding myself with a nice big bottle of Johnny Walker Blue. <laughs> If it, it Charlie it, likes that choice too. If, if Lindsey Graham manages to lose a seat held by Strom Thurmond for the better part of half a century, yeah, um, yeah if he manages to lose that yeah. seat, I, 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 I will, I will, be, I will show up at his office and drink a swig in front of it. I'll even offer him a glass <laughs> as he's as he moves out that's the door. Mag- you know what? That's that's really magnanimous of you. You know, yeah, if he, if of he course, turns my guess it down, is that Lindsey Graham would, oh, wait, oh, Lindsey oh, wait, Graham wait, would wait, then wait. try to move back oh, to the oh, left where Richard, he was before on, and say, oh, on. I was a Democrat all along. Hold on, Rich Rubino. Charlie, Charlie Bernie comes in from behind the glass. What was that, Charlie? He, he just said Johnny Walker Blue. I just want to know if he turns you down, I'll be happy to take his class. I will invite you there. And uh, if, if the good senator from South Carolina loses we, and turns down the glass. Are you suggesting uh, we should do a, rem- a remote show from uh, the uh, Senate office? buildings absolutely i like that yeah, <laughs> yeah that's I like right that. yeah i'm, I'm Can you sure get Lindsey graham on the show no, yeah that's not gonna happen I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that right now hey uh the here here's a question that everybody's been asking me and it, it ties in if anyone gets a chance you should pull up the six page letter that was just delivered I'm to the gonna speaker get that. I'm, get that. Uh, I'm reading it in real time here. So some of these nuggets are uh, the entirely corrupt leadership of the FBI. Uh, mind you, this includes his FBI. Right. Uh, it, it's just amazing. So um, for to to, to and let also everybody to learn how hold on what, me, what letters let, to capitalize okay, in the letter. Let, let me let me set this up. You know what? Let me moderate this thing. We're getting to that, dude. Okay. Uh, as Dan has pointed out, uh, as a response and part of the management of uh, of of battle damage, President Trump this day, because uh, again we record on Tuesdays this afternoon, uh, issued a six-page letter to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and it is it 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 starts out uh, by uh, his protest against the partisan impeachment crusade being pursued by the Democrats. In the House of Representatives, uh, he does say that the and this is a quote, the articles of impeachment introduced by the House Judiciary Committee are not recognizable under under any standard of constitutional theory, 
interpretation or jurisprudence. They include no crimes, no misdemeanors, and no offenses whatsoever. You have cheapened the importance of the very ugly word impeachment. Uh, Andrew Johnson was impeached partially because he was an alcoholic. Well, again, that was then. This is now the. Well, you know what Lincoln said. He said after after Andrew Johnson gave the Senate gave the um, his inauguration speech in 1865 because they gave him the vice president back then. After he seemed drunk, Lincoln said, "He Andy ain't no drunkard." Yeah, okay, true. <laughs> he also says in his uh, letter, "quote." Uh, going off of the lack of due process that has been accused by the Republicans and the president. A- after providing no witnesses wait, no, uh, and not, not providing any of the requested materials. Wait, 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 wait. What process is, is he talking he is due? Uh, he said that, uh, quote, more due process was afforded to those accused in the Salem witch trials. Hey, that's up in your neck of the woods, Rich. Yeah, that's, let's, it's let's... funny you say that because the, la- the last time um, Donald Trump talked about this being a witch hunt, Seth Moulton, who's a congressman up here, said, I happen to represent Salem, Massachusetts, and I can tell you this is no witch hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and w- w- while we're at it, uh, somebody needs to tell the good president uh, there is no Democrat party. It is the Democratic Party, but... Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't expect that kind of proofing to occur in in a letter from the president of the United States. You know, t- yeah. details. Well, <laughs> let me let me go to the fact that the the president closes out, and I'll read the last two paragraphs real quickly. Quote: There is far too much that needs to be done to improve the lives of our citizens. It is time for you and the highly partisan Democrats in Congress to immediately cease this impeachment fantasy and get back to work for the American people. While I have no expectations that you will do so, I write this letter to you for the purposes of history and to put my thoughts on a permanent and indelible record. He continues, 100 years from now, when people look back at this affair, I want them to understand understand it and learn from it so that it can never happen to another president again. Um very magnanimous of them. You'd think so. And, and poor writing. Well, we'll get to the. We, we're not going to get on that. But anyway, regarding the. This is a definite shot across the bow to Pelosi. And the fact that the president put out a six page letter publicly before the Rules Committee could go to the floor with the boundaries of the hearing. Uh, is this going to win over? Some Democrats that might be on the fence, or is this letter <laughs> is this letter going to you can laugh, but I gotta ask the question. Is this going to win over the opinion of some independent voters that they might be looking for in twenty twenty, in particular states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin? Dan Lipner. No. Okay. Thanks for the, thanks for the thanks I, I, thanks for the I, I, thank you for the credible analysis that you provide. I mean, there, there's R- absolutely Rubina. nothing in this letter that makes sense. The I mean, he includes the line here, though he puts asterisks of the we're going to impeach the the MFR for uh, Representative Al Green. I make I mean, this is just a horribly written letter. I mean, he leaves off leaves off elements that you know. The, even when he talks about the 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 call with Zelensky, he talks about you know I'm always looking out for the American people, but conveniently leaves off the mention of Biden that was in his own transcript. That was the transcript. I mean, there's there's so many there's so much nonsense at play here, and again, it's so 
poorly written, which is what... If are you, the, if this are you, were meant sh- to persu- are you shocked by this? If this were meant to persuade somebody, I'm not certain who that person would be because it's written in such partisan crap, and, and which comes including the the how to you know, how to troll the, the the libs by calling us the Democrat Party, which is just a trolling nonsense thing by the right wing troll farm. Yeah. It, there, there isn't there is no real thing there. I don't know who's convinced by this. Well, let me let me go to the bigger issue here because you, and, it, and it ties into where we're at coming into 2020 as we get ready for a hearing that that according to many of uh, on the hill that I've talked to said we're probably looking at about an early to mid January start date. It's definitely going to be after the holidays that this hearing will go. Rich Rubino, um we saw the results of the uh, impromptu uh, and sudden election called by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson in England. Those results came in last week, and it was a resounding success for Boris Johnson and his argument for Brexit. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the head of the Liberal Party, uh, the Labor Party, rather, in England, uh, and other leadership positions in the Labor Party have since resigned because of this disaster. Uh, A lot of people are saying that this should be a wake-up call. This should be a red flare for Democrats going into 2020. Is there is that a legitimate argument? Should Nancy Pelosi, the DNC, be looking at what happened in England and start looking at what happened, what could happen here in the United States? Yeah, but not based on the impeachment, more just based because our systems parallel their systems so well. I mean, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, the conservatives, and then you had John Major, the more moderate, and then George George H. W. Bush, and then you had you know Tony Blair with New Labor after Bill Clinton with new with the New Democrats. I mean, it's just it's very similar how the two systems are intertwined. And finally, you had two nationalists between Trump and Johnson. But I think the fear more there is more in the presidential election that a candidate like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders will be nominated and that Donald Trump will essentially be, make, be able to turn them into George McGovern, and they will not be able to get any support of those persuadable voters, and all they will get is their base. I think that's really the fear that we will parallel them in that sense. But you know, the impe- this isn't an impeachment like you know, this isn't impeachment like the Clinton impeachment when the vast majority of the country was against the impeachment. This is a, this is an issue when the, where the country is pretty is pretty is pretty you know ramified, pretty divided about this right now. So that's more the fear I think in the Democratic Party. But that being said. You know, Donald Trump last time around ran a revolutionary campaign, so there's always the possibility that the Democrats could do the same thing, and they could galvanize every single Democrat, every every member of their base they could possibly, they can bring out new voters. That's what I think Bernie Sanders would essentially argue by running a, you know, what Tom Harkin said in 1992 was an unapologetic liberal. But I think that's more what I think Pelosi's fear would be. Dan Lipner, you agree? Well, son of a bitch. Oh, sorry. I'm quoting from the president's letter here. He, he, he wrote those words um, in an official document from the president of the United States. And the, ar- to, and the, ar- and the archives are happy. Wow. Um, I'm sorry. What was the question? Was that Thomas Jefferson or Donald Trump? Good, good, uh, good Lord. So, uh, let me rephrase the question. No, for the you, Jeremy Dan. Corbyn business that that overstates the argument. Um, Why? So the labor had gone 
off the edge in the UK, uh, and the we're losing truly working class areas. They went so far left, which you could literally replace Jeremy Corbyn for. A Bernie Sanders or no, Elizabeth Warren? No, 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 oh, no, 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 on. absolutely not. No, 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 no. No, uh, you're telling me that Jeremy Corbyn is more left than Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? That's that the the analogy doesn't stand. Why? Well, for for starters, we don't have a Brexit boiling over our head for the last how many years has this, this been going on? I mean, Trevor Noah made the joke for you know the hundred the hundred years from now they will be celebrating the the postponement of Brexit vote and nobody will quite remember where this moment came from. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a certain we're sick of it uh, portion that's clearly going on with the British voters. Also, the the issues but, with but Corbyn as wait. an anti-Semite and talking about issues that don't actually affect the, the, again, the actual blue-collar workforce no. in the UK. But I talked to I've, Bernie I've talked Sanders to wait, wait, and on. Elizabeth Warren almost me, certainly talking to blue-collar workers. But now, it's not the Green New Deal, wait, and Elizabeth wait. Warren may have gone, uh, g- gone a, a mile too far on on how she <laughs> she's chose taking to... heat for Medicaid for all today, right? And that's in the Democratic primary. She's losing ground. But no, but the but moderates no, of the no. Democratic Party are, are moving forward in part because how she rolled it out. But, but again, let me go back to the fact there's a that stiff saying, test going on. But, and but and, again, let me go back to and saying Elizabeth Warren was never that radical left until she rolled out her Medicare for all because she wanted oh, Bernie Sanders. Oh, wait, voters. This, this, wait, you've got Bernie Sanders talking about uh, free college for everybody, yet no plan to pay for it. You've got more than one Democratic talking about socialized medicine, uh, Medicare for all, Medicaid for all. And the the the, the issue that I've talked what to- What other Democrats what, are talking about Medicare for all that are, that are credible candidates? That are credible candidates? Well, I you- mean, I don't know where Corey, Marianne Williamson's position is because she's Corey apparently still running. Uh, She's for it. Senator Bennett's apparently still running based on last time I checked. Cory Booker has yep. talked about it, and he's taken heat for that. Uh, and Andrew, still, is, is he, Andrew is he, Yang has talked about it, or at least it's $1,000 a person. What I'm getting at is in talking to people who represent areas like Liverpool, Manchester, northern, northwestern England, truly working class, rust belt England, they tell me the fact that Number one, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't relatable, a la Hillary Clinton. The, but the big, big issue was that the the party had been driven by the <clears throat> political elitists in London and metropolitan London, and they had lost touch with the true working class in the coal mines, in the steel mills, in the manufacturing plants outside of London. And that is why they voted. You had... Lifelong yes. labor and, members and, 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 voting yes. for conservatives. Yes, and and the 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 answer to your question and is they're following the United States, not leading it. West Virginia coal miners voting Republican, who literally fought fought with guns and blood for for their labor rights, voting Republican. Um, that's been happening for 20 years uh, in the poorest areas of Louisiana and Mississippi. People voting Republican in Indiana, in Michigan, of all places, that is now a right-to-work state. Um, 
these this has already occurred. So I, I'm I'm in agreement that the alienating working class voters from from the, the from the urban elites, but this goes back, and I'm I'm going to now again one up Rich here. This goes back to Clarence Darrow and Williams Jennings Bryan. It's all progressives at the table. The only difference is rural versus urban, and urban urban elites lo- looking down upon rural values that that while at the end of the day it might be backing labor. The when in the truth of it, it, people don't want to hang out with people that really look down upon Re- you. And yeah, there is something to that, but that's already that's happened. A great here. analogy, Rich Rubino. No, that's a. I mean, that's a great analogy, and that's the problem that the Democratic Party has had in the past. It's a party that it's a problem that they had certainly in the '80s when they nominated uh, Mondale, and then when they nominated Dukakis in 1988, and, and George w, George H. W. Bush, although he was an Ivy Leaguer himself, was able to say that Michael Dukakis's foreign policy plan came right out of the foreign policy. Um, policy, foreign policy comes right out of the Harvard boutique. I mean, that's essentially how Republicans are able to caricaturize Democrats, and that's certainly what they're going to try to do in the 2020 election. But I will say that Elizabeth Warren, based on her history, um, you know, she never mentions that she's from Massachusetts, never mentions Harvard. She's going to talk about how she's from Oklahoma. And if you look what she, what her actual plans are and what she's always talked about, it's been bankruptcy law. It's always been about – it's always been centered on – it's always been centered on working-class voters. And what was actually Bernie Sanders' bailiwick last time against Hillary Clinton, he actually did very well in some of these states. And there were a lot of – you know, there was about 6.7 million people who voted for Bernie and won in the primary then landed up voting for Trump. Um, the general election. It's always a fear, it's always a fear that the Democrats always have because there are a lot of people in the middle of the country that are fiscally rather populist that should be voting Democratic based on that based on that. But they believe that the Democratic Party, in terms of values issues on social issues, is essentially has left the reservation and they're all a bunch of elitists and they're all you know Ivy League and they're all and they all, they're all Ivy Leaguers and they're all kind of part of this oligarchy. Um, so it is it is an issue and it's certainly a um, a warning shot for the Democrats that they have to appeal to those blue collar to those blue collar voters. Even last time around, Hillary Clinton, when she talked about the basket of deplorables, when she talked about how even she's taken out of context, how she put the coal mining companies out of business. I mean, that really hurt her with a lot of those work, white but, working. But you would have th- you would have thought, Rich Rubino, that that uh, that Labor Party would have taken a note from Hillary Clinton and they put up basically the British Hillary Clinton when they put up Jeremy Corbyn. Although, well, I think Reverend Corbyn's way further to the left than Hillary Clinton is. I mean, Hillary Clinton was more of an establishment person, whereas Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn is more, or less, uh, is more or less a socialist in the British system. But it's also it's different in the British system, though, and a lot of people in America don't realize it. But you're not voting for prime minister. You're voting for your individual right. member of the parliament who right. then votes for the prime minister. So you could be voting for a conservative member of, a cons- a conservative but, member of the Labor Party, right. but they're then going to have to vote, and they're then going to have to vote for someone so, like Jeremy Corbyn. So everyone's kind of... Um, everyone, I think, everyone in the Brit- in the British system is kind of has to be, you know, tethered to whoever that person is. We've got five minutes left, and uh, real quickly, I do want to talk about uh, going forward. Number one, uh, kind of lightning round here. Uh, Joe Manchin is Joe Manchin a linchpin? Is everybody looking at him as far as what he does, as how he could vote in the Senate? Is is he a pivotal figure to watch? He is one of the Democrats that could vote against removal. Um, actually, he might be the only Democrat that might vote uh, against removal. Um, and he's stood up against the Democratic Party from time to time. Rich Rubino, you agree? Yeah. Oh, I completely agree. West Virginia is the most repu- is Donald Trump's best state last time around. Although Joe Manchin is not up for re-election this time around, 
Um, you know, Joe Manchin comes from a state that's very conservative, so yes, I think that. But I think that he also, like Colin Peterson, is probably going to get a pass from the Democratic leadership because it could be his political death knell if he does vote the other way. And the the other question is, uh, the FBI took a real big hit this week as far as, you know, the Republicans just bashing the entire the, the entire agency. Uh, President Trump even came out and said, you know, in a tweet, current FBI director Ray, does uh, Director Ray keep his job through the year? Dan Lipner. Um, well, based on everything else the president has done when people don't tow his nonsense line, I think he's in trouble. Uh, Rich Rubino. Yeah, I tend to I tend to agree. I think that n- normally I don't think a president would do anything to president to uh, Mr. Ray, but I think in this particular case, because of kind of Trump's personality, I think he would fire him. By the way, Director Ray looks a lot like Senator. Yep, he he looks like a lot like uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. Look at them together. It's like a it's like a mirror image. And, but <laughs> but to Thank be you. clear, go, go ahead, Director Rick. Ray wasn't responsible for any of the 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 misdeeds that occurred. Uh, the, the, director, that all predates him. Right. This is di- to fire Ray, him is simply because the president doesn't think he's being defended enough by the current FBI director. That's the nature of firing him if that occurs. Uh, as uh, one last question, before, and and by the way, we're getting breaking news right now. This always happens uh, at the time of recording. Uh, the FISA courts have just issued a statement which is unheard of counteracting the accusations that were brought forth about the in, the impropriety of how the FBI brought forth the case, that is going to be an interesting... Re- how come this happens five minutes before we go to... We finish this episode. God almighty. I mean, it's, pro- it's pro- the fights courts that the left has been complaining about for, well... Forever. Go, forever, basically since September 11th and... And ha- how uh, warrants have, have 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 been used? Um, so, some of those s- safe harbor protections <laughs> that the left had been complaining about, that the inspector general at the uh, Department of Justice looked at and said, "Yeah, there are f- there there are some issues there." And not knowing what 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 the FISA court has responded, which is yeah. This, just so everyone's aware, literally their offices are in the basement of the Justice Department. <laughs> that is where they live and work. <laughs> I mean, Rich Rubino, we're, we're just now getting this word. I mean, but that that's that's almost historic that a, a very secretive court like the FISA courts would issue a statement uh, almost defending the FBI and their investigative protocols. No, absolutely. It's. I mean, I don't know if there's been any sort of a precedent for that. Um, I've but never seen a statement is, come out of a FISA court. No, no one's, it's no one's supposed amazing. to know what they are. Even, Courts don't, don't normally issue statements. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we 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 we've uh, we, we're we're literally out of time. Uh, on behalf of uh, Charlie Barney, who's running the, the 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 board for us, thank you, Charlie. Uh, on behalf of Eric Thomas, our producer. Dan Lipner, myself, and Rich Rubino out there in the Bay State of Massachusetts. Thanks for keeping up with us. Thanks for watching. Hey, by the way, you can follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politic. You can also download us as a podcast on your favorite podcasting services, Google, Apple, iHeartRadio, Spotify. Uh, We're kind of a big deal. You can also download us from our website, uh, www.backroompolitics.org. 
Uh, also, we have a GoFundMe page, Support Backroom Politics. Uh, if you like our show and you love hearing the banter and the kind of really what happens in political discussion in Washington, please support us. Please continue supporting us so we can keep this mission going. Have a great time, America. We'll see you later in the week.